participated in Talk Radio Day at the United Nations, which is an annual event in which the United Nations Foundation brings a number of talk radio hosts from around the country to the UN for interviews with UN officials. My conversations kick off with a discussion with John Ash, who's the president of the General Assembly and the permanent representative from Antigua and Barbuda. Uh, Just as a bit of a background, so for the next year and a half, the UN General Assembly will be focused really sort of heavily on what will replace the Millennium Development Goals when they expire at the end of 2015. And this is a whole big, complex process of what to decide what will replace them. And this is called the Post-2015 Development Agenda. Uh, So my conversation with John Ash, the president of the General Assembly, uh, focuses on that. I then speak with the UN ambassadors from Jamaica and Vietnam to get their take on what priorities their countries are pursuing at the UN and why. And we have some pretty interesting conversations, particularly around some security issues that may or may not uh, be totally apparent to those of us who don't follow these issues closely. Following that, I speak with a representative from UNMAS, which is the United Nations Mine Action Service. Then I catch up with a representative from the United Nations Development Program who focuses on oceans policy, specifically on how to keep fish stocks from being overfished. Uh, And then I wrap up with a friend of UN Dispatch, Chris Watley, who is the head of the United Nations Association of the United States. Quick programming note, this is a special edition of Global Dispatches. Usually, I post one very long interview every Monday with a foreign policy luminary, a newsmaker, someone you've probably heard of. And every Thursday, I post a shorter interview with a journalist or think tank type on something topical and in the news. Subscribe on iTunes. Check us out on UN Dispatch. And here it is, my conversation with a number of officials at the United Nations for Talk Radio Day. And here is John Ash. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Good day to you out there. My name is John Ash. I'm president of the UN General Assembly at its 68th session. Uh, and this is an auspicious time to be speaking with you because I guess to be to use an unfortunate American sports metaphor, you are sort of like the quarterback for the post-2015 international development agenda. You're the person in charge of trying to help push it, push the ball forward a little bit on, <laughs> on what will replace the MDGs. And I know that in the coming month, one of the big inflection points will be the uh, Open Working Group's report. Can you just describe what that is, the Open Working Group uh, on Sustainable Development Goals and and your role in helping uh, push that forward? Well, thank you for that um, sports metaphor. I hadn't quite seen myself as a quarterback. (laughs) I hadn't quite seen myself as something of a um, holding the starting gun, telling people to line up and get ready um, for the race. universal. There you go. There you go. Um, The Open Working Group, this is one of the bodies created um, at the recent conference we had in Rio de Janeiro in 2012. And essentially, um, there's a feeling when one looks at the current regime that's in place here at the UN, which is the Millennium Develop, which are the Millennium Development Goals that were agreed in 2000 and will reach fruition in 2015. There's a feeling that when one looks at the eight Millennium Goals, the sustainability aspect is missing. And um, 
member states agreed to create a group, and it's called an open working group, to look at a set of goals, and they're called sustainable development goals. Um, it's intended to bridge the gap that many believe exists with the Millennium Development Goals and also to look forward um, to uh, a replacement, not replacement, a successor arrangement to those Millennium Development Goals. So that's what the open-ended working group is charged with. And so far in the negotiations, mm -hmm. uh, do you have any indication of what these goals might be? If not, I know the final draft isn't there yet, but do you have a sense of where it's going, of what might be included? The short answer is yes. The open working group has done a lot of work. They have currently a draft in place. Um, uh, it, it has 17 goals in a variety of areas and also a whole subset of targets attached to each of those goals. So, and what, what are out some of eight, of those? we have yeah. now moved to 17. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, like, what, what are some of those goals? Like, what, what might we look forward to in a final draft? Well, as you know, the overarching objective of the post-2015 development agenda is the eradication of extreme poverty. So it's heavily weighed towards that. Um, there is a um, talk about uh, health, sanitation, water, things that were missing from the Millennium Development Goals, energy. There's even something on climate change as well. And more importantly, it has what are called a means of implementation. That is, how do you go about to implementing these goals, the means to implement them. Mm -hmm. uh, and these sustainable development goals, or the process of creating the sustainable development goals, is just one sort of thing, it's one process that's feeding into the entire post-2015 development agenda, that idea of what's going to succeed the uh, Millennium Development Goals. Mm -hmm. um, how has that process worked so far? Um, I, I guess I should say in any bureaucracy, process has some effect on outcome. Mm -hmm. In what ways might this particular process affect the outcome, affect the, what, what we might see as the uh, successor to the Millennium Development Goals? Well, it's a huge difference in terms of the approach. The Millennium Development Goals were crafted by a group of men sitting in a basement room at the UN, a top-down approach. In the case of the Sustainable Development Goals, it is more bottom-up. There were a number of consultative processes involving both governments and civil society. Um, there were a lot of exchanges, a lot of views shared, and um, then the crafting began after you've had the consultation, um, which is somewhat um, different, uh, well, vastly different from what happened in the case of Millennium Goals. So they're seen as being more inclusive and um, far more representative of what many believe are actually needed. And so your open working group, or the, the open working group gets uh, fed to the entire General Assembly for, a bit, I suppose, like a year-long debate, I would imagine, uh, for what, I guess, how, how, how will this process resolve? Mm -hmm. Because it's, you know, as you said, you know, it's very inclusive, but sometimes very inclusive thing, you know, being very inclusive also slows down uh, the, 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 the whole agenda. Mm -hmm. So how do you see this kind of everything feeding into... Uh, the, you know, what, what will happen in 2016. Right. Well, it's a multi-step process. Um, the open working group is one facet. There is another small group called an expert group dealing with the financing aspect of things. Both of these groups will submit their reports to the upcoming session of the General Assembly. Separate and apart from that, the Secretary General will prepare a report, it's called a synthesis report, where he will draw on those reports plus others from other processes, and that report then becomes the basis for consideration by member states who will then negotiate and produce something for September 2015. That's the most articulate answer to that question <laughs> I've had. I, I study this for a long time and I still can't make sense of it. Well, you can thank it. my um, press postperson. Um, I, I want to ask you about the role of the President of the General Assembly. Right. You're, I suppose, most known as the, the person who introduces the heads of state at the big UN general debate. Uh, you know, that, that's, I suppose, when you're on most televisions across the world. Uh, but what, behind the scenes, what, what, what is your job? What is the day-to-day -day job? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Um, the President of the General Assembly is responsible for the work of the General Assembly, the UN General Assembly, for an entire year. 
that work is essentially built around um, an agenda that has, for this year, 178 items. So the the PGA, as we call him or her, um, is responsible for the implementation of that agenda. And that involves meetings, conferences, everything you can think of. And at the very end of it, um, in addition to that, the PGA normally has some initiatives of his or her own. And that is overlaid on the work, the, the regular work of the General Assembly. And so, so one hopes at the end of it, you would have achieved all the objectives. So at one part, you're sort of like a, almost like a secretary, uh, coordinating the work of the other perm reps. But a then quarterback, you, I would like to think. Quarterback, exactly. Yes, right. Back to the quarterback. Metaphor. Yes. And so uh, you also said that that you get to you know put your own stamp on the year. What right. what have been your particular priorities? In this my year? case, it's to kickstart. That's what I said. I prefer to think of myself as a kickstart. Yeah, kickstart the process that will ultimately lead to a post-2015 development agenda. Uh, well, good luck to you, sir. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Pleasure. Good morning. I'm Courtney Rattray. I'm the permanent representative of Jamaica to the UN. I've been doing this job just one year now. My anniversary was last week. Before that, I was in China. I was Jamaica's ambassador in Beijing for almost five years. And then prior to that, I was in Jamaica as the head of our bilateral relations department. So what are Jamaica's foreign policy priorities? And what, what, were, you, what were you doing in China? What are you doing here? What, what sort of interests are you trying to, to advance? You know, in a nutshell, it's all about economic diplomacy, and that's not just for Jamaica. For many of the developing countries of the world and those small island developing states, our primary objective is to secure more trade and investment for our countries. So when you send somebody like me to China, it's primarily in recognition of the fact that China has been the only growth pole throughout this recession and the only capital-rich country around since 2008 when we had the global financial and economic meltdown. And so Jamaica looks to China as an economic partner, but we also have things that we can offer to China as well. So it was a two-way relationship. But even here in the United Nations, I mean, we're very focused on the development agenda of the UN. I mean, we're involved in other aspects of the UN as well in terms of peacekeeping, etc. But we're focused on the post-2015 development agenda because that is what we see with most impact, the lives of the people of our country. I'll, I'll get back to that because that's a very interesting topic. But, uh, you know, you don't think often about Chinese investments in, in the Caribbean. You know, when you think about China investing in the developing world, typically you're thinking about Africa. What what sort of, I guess, what were you able to achieve as, as Jamaica's ambassador to China? And what do Chinese investments in uh, the Caribbean and Latin America look like? Well, let me give you an example. Um, Jamaica is traditionally, and this is going back hundreds of years, the Jamaica has been a sugar economy, like all the countries of the Caribbean. And of course, we are now transitioned to a service economy. We still have a big sugar industry, a big sugar cane industry. And it was, for the most part, all of the sugar, most of the sugar estates were not in private hands. They were owned by the government. And while I was in China's ambassador, I was able to encourage the Chinese to actually take over all of the sugar factories from the government. So they bought it out, and they're now owned and operated by Chinese firms. So, it's, 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 so the Chinese, basically Chinese government firms now own J Jamaican sugar farms, right? Well, we tend to think, because China is, at the political level, still a command economy. It's a communist country. So we tend to think that their business is also organized in that way, but it's not really so. Businesses are privatized, so the business that owns our sugar companies is not a government firm. It's a private sector Chinese company that have invested in the assets of a Jamaican sugar company. So it's a private company, not a government company. And and, and they're exporting the sugar to China? or is They're exporting the sugar to Europe. To I Europe. mean, that's been our traditional market throughout the years. And I don't think personally that the government needs to be in the business of operating sugar companies. They can't do it efficiently. And so the Chinese pumped a lot of capital into the sugar industry and has made it much more competitive. They've changed out a lot of the old machinery. So that's one area. They've also bought into our coffee industry. Jamaica has the best coffee in the world, and I say so without fear of contradiction. Jamaica Blue Mountain Coffee is the best, and um, it, the traditional market for that has been Japan. 
and um, Japan suffered during the economic crisis. And so the demand in Japan fell off, and it was an ideal opportunity for it to expand our market. So the Chinese now are taking some of our coffee. And the third way I want to talk about is that the Chinese have come in to help the government in terms of investing in our infrastructure. We have a fiscal crisis in Jamaica, just like there's a fiscal crisis in Europe and also in the United States. And so we just didn't have the fiscal space to undertake a lot of the investments we needed in our roads, in our, in our ports, in our telecommunications. And so China has come in in terms of a public-private partnership with the government and provided the capital for us to build out a lot of these roads. That's it, because it's not terribly dissimilar to what China is doing in a lot of um, African countries. It's the same model, actually, yeah. I, I guess, have you um, compared notes with some of your African colleagues in terms of best practices from a uh, you know, developing country you know, recipient, uh, aid recipient point of view, try to sort of secure the best yeah. outcomes for yourself? Yeah, we certainly have taken note. And I tell you, one of the difficulties that you have, one of the tensions that you have when China comes in, China likes to come into your country fine with the capital, but they also come in with the expertise. But when you have 10, 15% unemployment, I mean, and you have loads of Chinese workers coming in, building roads, and somebody will say, listen, that's a relatively low-skilled job. I could be doing that. Here I am, a Jamaican, willing hands to work, no jobs, and these Chinese are building roads. That can create tension. So what we have said in our arrangement with the Chinese that, look, you can't just come in with your labor force. Maybe your labor force at the very high end with the technical expertise, engineer level, but you can't tell me that we don't know how to construct roads. So we have to have an arrangement where there are jobs jobs provided, even though they're temporary jobs, they're jobs provided for our local workforce. And that is what we've been able to secure. So what we're doing with them is not saying, come in and build the roads for us. Come in with your capital, with your high-level expertise, but at the basic level, we want to employ Jamaicans, and that's what is happening. Uh, and turning to the United Nations, uh, you mentioned earlier that one of your priorities is uh, the post-2015 international development agenda, so setting the, you know, what's going to replace the Millennium Development Goals. And this is obviously very important from a developing country's uh, perspective. What are you looking to uh, get out of this? What outcomes are you looking to secure from this process? And what are your priorities, I guess, going into it? Because we're about to enter this big year of negotiations. What, what, what are you looking to get out? Well, we're in the process now. The stage at which we are, we're still in the informal consultation stages during the open working group. So um, at some point later this year, there's going to be a report coming from the open working group, and that will feed into the Secretary General's report. And during the next session of the UN, the 69th session of the GA, we will start the intergovernmental process. But this stage, the informal consultations, is where each country is trying to make sure that their areas of priority get represented or reflected in the goals. Right now we're working with about 15 different goals. We expect that that will be whittled down to maybe about 11 or 12 goals. And what we're looking for is like a goal on sustainable energy because energy is critical to competitiveness and Jamaica needs to have more sustainable energy. Right now we're still very reliant on fossil fuel. We import 95% of our energy and it's fossil fuel, it's crude oil. And we need we import it from mostly from Venezuela. Venezuela has an arrangement called Petrocaribe with the rest of the Caribbean where we're not buying oil from them on concessional terms because Venezuela is a member of OPEC. So they can't sell you cut price oil. But we do have generous terms where we don't need to pay for it when we take it. You know, they give us up to 25 years to pay for the oil. So we have a beneficial arrangement with them. But we need to transition from them. We don't need to be dependent on oil. And it's, you know, the price of it is unpredictable. So we need to be able to transition to wind, to solar, to hydro. So we're hoping that in the SDGs there's going to be some focus on sustainable energy. So is the idea, if there is a specific, you know, goal around sustainable energy, uh, is the idea then that donor nations 
organizations will sort of invest in sort of Jamaican, you know, sustainable energy uh, projects? Is that sort of the, the ultimate goal? Well, there is a complementary process to the SDGs, which is an expert group on financing. We know there's a lot of finance out there. There's a lot of capital. There's something like $17 trillion of capital sloshing around, and a lot of it is not deployed for long-term development purposes. It's sitting on the sidelines, and we want to see how we can mobilize that towards the, the development needs of countries around the world. So, yeah, part a lot, a big part of it is getting the financing. But another big part of it is just getting the technology. You know, how do we import the technology that we need? How do we get it from countries that are doing it very well? So it's technology, it's capacity building, and it's financing. So that's one area. The other area is also how do we stimulate more broad-based economic growth and sustainable economic growth? How do we address issues like climate change? There's a lot of discussion whether or not you have a standalone goal on climate change, and we're at the heart of that as a small island country. Disaster risk reduction, you know, we're very much impacted by tropical storms and hurricanes. So these are the areas that we want to see reflected, and it's a competition amongst countries whether or not their special areas of concern will be reflected in what is going to be a limited set of goals. So, actually, you've been here for a year. Um, how does a country like Jamaica, a relatively small uh, developing country, advance those goals? You said there's a competition uh, among member states into you know getting their priorities reflected in these goals. How does sort of one relatively small country advance its agenda in this you know, this kind of crazy building here? Okay, so listen. So the Open Working Group is the forum that has been designed for us to participate, but it's not open to everybody as an official member. It has kind of worked out that way that it's open ended, but they named a core group of countries that have been members of the Open Working Group. So we have 14 member states of CARICOM, which is the Caribbean countries. Not all of us are on the Open Working Group. Only about six countries are. So what we do as Jamaica, we're not one of those six. So we key in our thoughts into those CARICOM member states that are members of the Open Working Group. And because there's a lot of flexibility in terms of participation, we can communicate our views through to the CARICOM countries that have a say, or sometimes they allow us to actually make a statement as Jamaica, but we actually work through CARICOM. It's basically about working with other like-minded countries. With other like-minded countries, other regional countries, because in our region a lot of the concerns are common to our region, but also a lot of other like-minded non-regional countries as well. Uh, well, Mr. Ambassador, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, I'm uh, Le Hoi Chung, and uh, I'm Ambassador Permanent Representative Vietnam to the United Nations. I've been here for three years, and I was posted here before. Okay. When was your previous posting? I was posted here, the first time was from 83 to 86. Second, as the ambassador? No, as a uh, junior okay. officer in the mission. And the second time was from 91 to 93, and last time was uh, 99 to 2002 as a deputy permanent representative. See, I presume you've been in the Vietnamese Foreign Service for, for a long time. Yes, for a long time. I think that uh, for 32 years now. Oh. Okay. Uh, so what are some of Vietnam's priorities at the United Nations? What are, what are you focusing on right now? We, uh, in, in Vietnam's view, uh, the UN is an important organization because it has uh, the membership includes almost every country in the world. It covers almost area of uh, human activity. For us, the priority is, of course, to help uh, promote the uh, work in the most important area of the UN, that is to um, maintain international peace and security, uh, prevent and resolve uh, conflicts and disputes, and, of course, to uphold international in that regard. Secondly, for us, that is the development cooperation, because uh, uh, it is uh, one of the important issues for the UN, especially at this juncture, 
for example, the promotion of the implement, implementation of the Millennium Development Goals, and also the reforms of the UN so that the UN can be more effective, and in that regard also activities that related to human rights. So basically everything the UN does, yes, Vietnam everything. has a, has a we, stake we, in. we set the, the, the top priorities. So number one is maintain international peace and security. So how does that apply to Vietnam? What are some of your biggest current security threats? Oh, for us now, as you may may know, uh, since uh, the 2nd of, of May till now, uh, China has uh, moved a very big drilling uh, rig together with a number of vessels into the uh, exclusive economic zone and continental shelf of Vietnam, uh, established by the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. So it is an, uh, an issue of concern to us. It uh, uh, increases tensions, even if it is a disputed area, we think that any unilateral act would not uh, help uh, resolve the situation. So we hope that we could promote the peaceful settlement of disputes. Well, this, this is probably difficult, though, because China, of course, is a permanent member of yes. the Security Council. Yes. Vietnam is not. China is a you know, large country. Vietnam is, is small. How do you uh, challenge China on this issue when, obviously, at the Security Council, it's not going to go anywhere? I think that uh, as China is a permanent member of the Council, it has the special responsibility. Uh, so, Which, obviously, it isn't quite exercising in your perspective. Uh, we, uh, so that is why we, we hope that, uh, that China realizes about that. It is in the interest of uh, peace and security in the region and also in the interest of uh, friendship between the two countries. Uh, and what uh, what does China hoping to accomplish by moving its vessels into this disputed zone? We we are concerned about that because um, because it it might uh, it might because if we do not uh, protest against it, uh, it might it might amount to uh, an acceptance of uh, of China's uh, claims uh, over that area, and uh, that is why we. That is one of the reasons why we, we have to, to, to protest. And we have uh, uh, had over there only the uh, civilian uh, vessels. Uh, we are there just to assert that uh, this is the area of uh, sovereign rights and jurisdiction of Vietnam, as established by the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. And uh, those, uh, the, the drilling rig uh, and also the vessels should leave uh, the area. Uh, but uh, on their part, China has rammed uh, the Vietnamese uh, ships and also uh, used uh, water cannon against uh, our ships. But we very much we have exercised uh, self-restraint and very much want to promote the peaceful settlement of dispute. So we have had uh, recently a, a, a meeting with a uh, high-level uh, leader of, of, of China. Uh, and how concerned are you for events in nearby Thailand uh, in terms of sort of regional stability? Do you, do you see any negative consequences of the recent coup? We think that uh, for, for as a member of ASEAN, we, we all hope to see stability and also prosperity in every other what ASEAN democracy? country. Of course, democracy, but uh, as you know, um, uh, Thailand has... Thailand, the, the current uh, uh, authorities of Thailand have explained to to the world about the difficulties that, that they have been facing. So we we hope to see the situation in Thailand to be back to normal as uh, soon as possible. And for Vietnam, as uh, as for other ASEAN countries, we would like to to facilitate that process. And you can see that in Southeast Asia, uh, we need to give uh, the, the the space. And also, we try to create the conditions for the nation concerned to try to find the ways forward. Otherwise, maybe in some other parts, if we we rush into some actions, we may create some destabilizing. Uh, conditions and it may not create the most favorable conditions for those that are involved in that country to find the solutions uh, peacefully and also to deal with that with the 
issues more effectively. So uh, what are some of the other uh, peace and security issues that are facing Vietnam right now that you're trying to pursue at the United Nations? You mentioned China's uh, claims to disputed territory. Uh, are there other particular issues that, that you're concerned about? And you know, uh, when we talk about the disputes on the what we, uh, on what we call as the East Sea and otherwise called as the South China Sea, you can see that there are also overlapping claims uh, on some other parts in the uh, on the South China Sea, and also there are even disputes. The issue that is why uh, the Association of uh, Southeast Asian Nations, together with China. Uh, came to what we called as the Declaration of Contact on the South China Sea in 1992 to govern the behavior of uh, the countries on the South China Sea. For example, to refrain from undertaking unilateral action uh, that would um, undermine uh, security over there, or also to uh, observe the uh, principle of non-threat of use of force and non-use of force. And a, a number of countries in, in the region have been able to come to some agreement. And so we hope that uh, that uh, that would be the same in the case of uh, these between China and other countries. And about other issues, for example, and now, as you may know, there are like non-traditional facts, like the negative climate change. Uh, Vietnam, according to a report of the World Bank, is one of the five countries that would be hit the hardest by the rise of the sea level. And you can see uh, it is a, an, an issue. And now, in Southeast Asia and some other countries, you have seen the diseases, a number of diseases that might have uh, regional and global consequences. So it is now a kind of non-traditional security threat. So in terms of the climate change issue, you know, Vietnam obviously is a country that's not responsible for climate change mm. to a degree that the China or the United States is. Um, how are you like, going about urging the countries that are responsible for climate change to help Vietnam uh, mitigate some of the negative consequences of sea level rise. Yes. We have and, and, and sorry, and, and specifically, I mean, are you going to have to relocate populations from coastal towns? Like, what what down the road do you see as things that, that Vietnam is going to need to do to prepare for you know, the impending doom that is climate change and rising Yes, it is an important issue for the international community and also for Vietnam. It has a direct impact upon Vietnam, for example, about the frequency of, of, of typhoons or storms. And also the damage, the greater damage that those typhoons and floods have caused to the population, just an indication. And also the, because of the rise of the sea level, so the intrusion of water into the cities in Vietnam or in the Mekong Delta uh, city areas, etc. So we have undertaken a number of measures in terms of policy, in terms of law, and also in terms of concrete actions. In terms of policy, for example, we have formulated the uh, strategy to deal with uh, the negative uh, climate change. Also, we have uh, formulated a strategy to deal with, uh, uh, to promote uh, green growth and including a green industry. Uh, and within those uh, strategies, so in those strategies, we set the targets that we have to attain. Uh, we um, also formulate uh, the measures at the strategic level. For example, within the framework of those strategies, provinces uh, at the local level and also government agencies would have to form formulate their own strategies and plan, plan of action to implement those. Uh, for example, we have a target to reduce the uh, unit of energy uh, that would uh, be needed for the production of one unit of GDP, uh, for example. Or about uh, the policy to uh, gradually uh, use the new or clean technology in our industrial activities, or how to 
replace the obsolete technology with the new technology. But I guess even if Vietnam does all these things tomorrow, you're still going to face the consequences of, of climate change. Yes. Are, are, is, is your government undertaking policies um, that recognize that populations are going to have to move? Or yes. Are you, I guess what, what do those policies look like? Yes, we, uh, for example, uh, it, for example, about, uh, we have uh, policies in different areas. For example, the uh, Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Development would have to uh, have its own strategy to deal with uh, how to deal with people that uh, even we have to uh, change our farming uh, um, uh, our farm, our farming habit. For example, uh, move uh, encourage and help people to move move from one area to another. For example, because of the impact of the uh, of climate change, there are more natural calamities like uh, like a mudslide, uh, like a typhoon, and that would cause a flood from the high level to low level. So we have to identify uh, areas that are more vulnerable to those things. Uh, so on the one hand, we may have to build more um, uh, solid structures. Uh, on the other hand, we would have to reallocate uh, people, relocate people. And in some areas, for example, in the Mekong Delta, our motto is that sometimes we have to live with the nature. So you cannot get away from the land uh, forever. So we anticipate that there would be certain level of flood every year. So we would have to um, build the houses, uh, the dikes in a way that accommodate rather than you just block the water. Once you just block the water, then we would expand to the other area. The force would be much larger. So you have to find a way to live with them. And we work with the international community. For example, for the UN, the UN has been effective in uh, promoting the coordination among the international partners of Vietnam to assist Vietnam in dealing with uh, the negative impact of uh, climate change, for example, to formulate strategies, plans, laws, to strengthen the capacity, or, for example, projects about uh, disaster warning. And also, the second aspect is that we work with the international community in the negotiations uh, that are ongoing about climate change, etc., and uh, share experience. Well, Mr. Ambassador, thank you very much for your time. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. Nice seeing you. Nice to see Thank you. you. Yes. My name is Kurt Chesko. I'm, the, I'm a program officer with the UN Mine Action Services, and I'm the, uh, my, my portfolio includes Afghanistan and Colombia. So the UN Mine Action Service is like the, the UN's own hurt locker, right? Well, yeah, actually, a little bit. I've never heard it put that way. But, uh, yeah, we're the, we're the focal point for explosive hazards of war, so that includes landmines, uh, unexplored ordnance, which is, as you mentioned, from the type of stuff that is from hurt locker, uh, but also uh, IEDs, Cluster munitions, basically any any sort of debris of war. So does does the unmasked of the UN Mine Action Service? Do you guys have like you know people in the field in those big suits, on, you know, digging up landmines? Exactly. Like what, how, how does the, the system work? Yeah, I mean that's that's sort of the the conventional view of things. Uh, men and women in Kevlar working in in minefields, looking for uh, mines which are usually hidden underground with a metal detector and then excavating them and then blowing them up. But but also, I mean, today we've sort of, uh, it's a lot more than just landmines, which is what we were really focusing on when we, when we were created by the General Assembly back in 1997. Uh, and now it's, it's, it involves stuff like uh, uh, rebuilding um, armories, for example, to store uh, ammunition that maybe before had just sort of been laying around a space, which obviously causes security issues. Right. There was that big explosion in uh, Congo, no, Congo Brazzaville, right? Uh, yeah. A few years ago, I mean, the munitions dump just exploded. Exactly. Like, and, get, like, and, the munitions like in the middle of the city, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I and mean, this has happened several times in the last decade. I, 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 I know very well a similar situation in Mozambique and Maputo about 10 years ago where, uh, you know, just sort of rusting ammunition uh, was, you know, in the middle of Maputo, a huge, you know, multi-million people city. Uh, 
uh, exploded and then just, you know, shooting out ammunition into a busy urban area. And the same as Congo Brazzaville, a couple hundred people were killed. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, in, in this situation, the UN Mine Action Service just, like, helps governments try to figure out how to best store their old and rusty exactly. ammunition. Exactly. And then, of course, disposing of the, the unserviceable ammunition. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, I mean, in addition just to the, you know, to protection of civilians, this these types of ammunition um, are very commonly used by insurgencies. You know, if they're not well stored or well guarded, the explosive can be harvested from this type of stuff and then used for more nefarious purposes. So where, what countries, what regions are of, of deepest concern to unmask? Where, is Laos still the most mined country in the world? I've um, seen that written I mean, that long ago. A lot of people ask me what's the most mined. Um, it's certainly, Southeast Asia is certainly a region that is among the highest. Is that just like a legacy from the Vietnam War? Exactly. Still? So I think, I think in Laos, it's a lot more of just Vietnam War era cluster bombs, mm-hmm. small cluster Unexploded bombs. munitions. Exactly. And they're still quite unstable all this time. But um, Afghanistan is certainly probably the most landmine affected. Colombia, uh, Cambodia. Uh, so, I mean, it's hard to say exactly because you can look at it in many ways. If it's the number of victims, it's Cambo- it's uh, Afghanistan. Um, but maybe the number of mines and stuff, I mean, these kinds of things aren't really easy to tell. But as far as where UNMAS is, I mean, I, I guess right now we're really ramping up activities in Mali and Central African Republic, uh, sort of in line with UN peacekeeping missions going on there, because that's a large role of ours to support the peacekeeping missions. Since the advent of the campaign to ban landmines, mm-hmm. the Landmine Treaty, has the proportion of your work sort of shifted from mines to unexploded ordnance and cluster munitions? So, like in, um, for example, in Mali, are you talking about old school landmines that are being used, or uh, is it, you know, most unexploded munitions. Sure. I'm not an expert on Mali, so I'll speak more about Afghanistan if that's sure, okay. Yeah, that's um, but it's an interesting question about yeah. the, the treaty. I mean, the, the uh, Ottawa Convention. Um, I think what it's done is it has created a stigma for landmines, so they haven't been used uh, as much as they were sort of during the Cold War 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, and uh, what it's really... So, so yeah, we don't see as much new mine laying going on. They've sort of become this weapon that has a stigma that, you know, just people aren't using it. I mean, I also think it has to do with the sort of shift in how conflict is carried out these days. You know, you don't have as many troops moving through an area. But um, uh, what it has done, and I see this in Afghanistan, is it's take, it's 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 sort of energized governments to uh, to deal with their, their landmines. Whether the, it's the mines laid in the ground or the stockpiles, you have governments like Afghanistan that are really committed to reaching mine-free status by, you know, within the time frame. So Afghanistan, it's they're working towards 2023. So in in eight years, if I've done my math right, uh, Afghanistan could be free of mines. And so what, uh, I guess, take us inside UNMAS's program in Afghanistan. You said sure. that's an area where you, yeah. where you work. What, what does that program look like? Sure. Well, the mine action program in Afghanistan is the largest uh, mine action program in the world with about 10,000 men and women working every day. So Mostly local employees, exactly, I would imagine. Exactly. I mean, yeah. that's a big, big... Uh push for unmasked is building national capacities and, and Afghanistan is really the you know the gold standard as far as national capacity goes these experts are you know they have 25 years of experience in mine action so um, unmasked runs a, pro- a program called the mine action coordination center of Afghanistan which is about 140 national staff uh, it's all it's all Afghan uh, and then they work with the implementing partners in the field who are carrying out demining the removal of mines, uh, uh, small arms like weapons destruction, uh, mine risk education, uh, victim assistance, uh, and we're working closely with the government to strengthen their capacity to manage these. Is, how issues. dangerous is this work, aside from you know the fact that you're digging mines out of the ground, which is, I guess itself is probably inherently dangerous, how much under threats from, say, the Taliban are these workers? Because, you know, the, like, you know mines are tools of war, and yeah. this is a country at conflict, so yeah. Presumably, removing or adding mines well, I think, the balance. I think the, the interesting other. thing about landmines in Afghanistan is that whether you're, you know, a Taliban or you know just some farmer who 
isn't you know affiliated with any of that. They, everyone in Afghanistan has a, has been affected. I mean, 700,000 people in Afghanistan live within 500 meters of a minefield. So interestingly, I mean, although it, it has happened and it, and it's unfortunately we've seen it recently that that insurgencies have attacked the men and women uh, working in in mined areas. Uh, for the most part, the Taliban and and other insurgent groups, you know, respect the work of the of the mine action of the the demining operators because they too, their families, they themselves have been impacted by mines. So, you know, they in the past, anyways, um, I think everybody in Afghanistan, wherever you you stand, uh, has understood the the benefit of mine action. And tell me about Colombia, which is you know obviously a country that's has had you know decades of conflict. Yeah. Um, what's the landmine situation there? The unexplored. I think a lot of people are really surprised to hear about you know how many mines, uh, how mine affected Colombia is. So uh, give us, it's, know, how, it's, how is over, it? it's over ten thousand victims. Uh, I, I can't remember when the statistics. Uh, I think since nineteen ninety actually, um, over ten thousand victims. So it's definitely up there in amongst the highest. Uh, and you know now. As as the sort of peace discussions are going on, uh, we anticipate that there's going to be a huge need to clear these communities as people return to their homes uh, following, you know, decades of conflict. Uh, it's people always ask me, you know, why do you manage the Columbia desk and the Afghanistan desk? What's the connection? It is sort of random, but uh, Afghanistan's a very mature mine action program that's 20, 20 something years old now, and Columbia is a very new mine action program. So there's a lot of lessons learned from, and they're both, they both have really widespread contaminations. So there's a lot of lessons we can learn from from Afghanistan as we, you know, as this mine action framework in Colombia takes place. Uh, great. Well, thank you very thank much you. for your time. Thank you very much. Yeah, my name is Andrew Hudson. I'm uh, with the United Nations Development Program, UNDP, and I'm head of the Water and Ocean Governance Program at UNDP. And uh, I guess what does that mean? What, what's the water and o how, how is the UN controlling our oceans? Right. Well, we work to support uh, uh, UN, uh, sorry, member states, developing countries in particular, with improving management of, of water and coastal resources. So we help them with everything from uh, putting together plans, management plans for coastal resources, fisheries, among others, uh, helping them put together the, the appropriate policies for sustainable use uh, of, of resources and also help helping create and nurture and, and, and uh, sustain institutions, new institution arrangements, again, for the purpose of sustaining water and ocean resources. So is it mostly for conservation purposes? It's, it's a mix. It's for conservation, but not as well as ensuring um, that human needs and uses of both water and ocean resources are met. So whether it's human uses of water for productive uses, such as agriculture, uh, that fisheries are, you know, are fish, but fish sustainably, so that resource is, is available going forward for the people. So what are, are there particular areas or regions where overfishing is most concerning to you? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the FAO statistics, who are kind of the, the owner of these things, you're talking about a third, 30% or so of the world's fishery stocks, fish stocks, are considered either over-exploited or even um, depleted or, or almost collapsed. Uh, and then another, say, 50% are considered exploited at their maximum allowable yield, so they're sort of on the brink. And then only 10 or 20% are considered, you know, exploited below. So, you know, that means dozens of fish stocks around the world are in trouble. And so we're working with agencies like FAO, but others as well, on uh, helping countries with, and, and especially groups of countries that share fisheries resources. So a good example is the Pacific. Western Central Pacific uh, yield of tuna fisheries is about half the world's tuna demand. And so Western Pacific. Western so what Pacific country, well, off the coast of what countries? Basically all the Pacific islands, 14 island states, Papua New Guinea as well. And um, and then, of course, you have the distant fishing nations, the European, the Russian, the Span Spaniards, the U.S. But they send, like, boats out there. Right. And fish, so what we've uh, been doing now for 15 years, it's a great story, is we've been helping the Pacific Islands a number of things. Put in place, first of all, a legal framework. There's now a legal convention that regulates those fisheries uh, that most, uh, pretty much all the fishing nations, uh, both distant and local, have signed on to. Um, and then we've helped them over the years put in place what's actually one of the most advanced and sophisticated uh, fisheries monitoring 
and compliance regimes in the world, which is, includes things like vessel monitoring systems. Every of the 2,000 or so vessels in that huge area, 40 million square kilometers, has, a, has basically a transponder on it that allow people in offices halfway around the world to monitor where those vessels are, what they're doing, and basically to monitor uh, a lot that they're, they're catching within their allowances. Uh, and then on top of that, there's a vessel um, observer system. Many vessels have observers sitting on them in real time to monitor the compliance. And then at the ports, looking at what comes the offload of the, of the fish catch that it, that it meets the requirements. So over that time, you're seeing you know a huge decrease in so-called illegal fishing, unregulated fishing, uh, a decrease in discards, which are catching the wrong fish and, and throwing them out. So it's it's a great it's a great work in progress. Uh, and UNDP, we're very proud. Over the last year or so, we partnered with um, Discovery Channel Asia in the production of a documentary that's now being shown on Discovery Channel in Asia on the tuna fishing. It's called Saving Our Tuna. Uh, it's not available yet in the, in the Western market, but okay. in time it may be. But it's a really superb storytelling, especially about the technology, how the technology has really played a key role in helping them sustain those fisheries. Uh, so you, you cite that as an example of things gone well. Where is there like a, a region that concerns you the most where this kind of program hasn't been implemented or is implemented to a uh, lesser degree? Yeah. Um, I like to focus on the success stories, so we have a few, but there... It's like, what, where does overfishing most concern you in the world? Probably, I mean, probably getting back to Asia, East Asia. You know, East Asia is both one of the biggest fishery production parts of the world as well as the biggest consumer. And most of the East Asian countries have very high per capita consumption of fish. So, yeah, there you face a lot of challenges. I think, I don't know, that I can't think of the numbers off the top of my head, but I, I think if you looked at them, the, the, you'd see a number of fish stocks that are threatened. And, of course, on top of that, you have the, the ongoing sort of linked issue of continuous, continued loss and destruction or, or degradation of coastal habitat. The mangroves, the corals, the seagrasses that are the habit, that are the nursery grounds, the breeding grounds, and so forth for many of these fish. So, East Asia is certainly a hot spot for, for, for fish, for sustainability, for biodiversity protection. It's the most biodiversity rich part of the world for, for the ocean. Is there a species of fish that we consume that, uh, you know, that they, you mentioned tuna as being sort of on the edge of sustainability? Are there others? Like, I eat a lot of cod. Is that, uh, am I doing okay? I buy cod from Whole Foods. Right. Am I doing right, right by the, right. the world's um, sustainable it, it development? Is, well, as you know, it, it tends to be these larger, gl- more glamorous species that are also the ones tend to be overfished. The tuna, the swordfish, the sharks. Sharks are facing an implosion of their global populations. Uh, and so we, we need to definitely pay attention when we're buying fish in the supermarkets that uh, increasingly you're seeing these labels, these certification labels. There's something called the Marine Stewardship Council, for example. Where if you see that label, you have a pretty good indication that that fish has been inspected and is being managed. Sustainable. So what's the so what's the label we should look out for? I should look out for. Yeah, I don't know what it actually looks like the logo, but it's, it's the Marine Stewardship Council is probably the preeminent international um, okay. exercise to to label fisheries for that. And there's you know a good accusement as in the last 20 years the growth of aquaculture as a source of fish food protein has skyrocketed. It's been growing six to eight percent a year. Now it's basically fish farms, right? Exactly, fish, but yeah. everything, um, invertebrates and fish, yeah. um, shellfish and fish. In fact. There's more shellfish than fish, actually. But anyway, nowadays, as opposed to 20 or 30 years ago, 46% of all the seafood products that humans eat on Earth is from aquaculture. So it's good news in some ways because it's at least to some degree helped reduce the pressure on the, on the wild fish stocks, but there's still serious issues, as we've said. But equally importantly, there's a whole sustainability issue with aquaculture. A lot of aquaculture is not done sustainably. You have pollution effects. You have invasive species um, uh, bringing in new gene pools to a local population that can, that can cause problems. So... Uh, sustainable aquaculture is really a huge. It's both. A, it's a huge challenge, but it represents really a potential key piece of the solution to sta- sustainable fishing. To, to move more of that production to aquaculture, do it sustainably, take the pressure off the wild stocks. Uh, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I learned more about fishing uh, than I think I ever have in any six-minute period. So thank you. That's great. Yeah. my pleasure. Thank yeah. you very much. Right, Thanks. Thank you. My name is Chris Watley. I'm the executive director of the United Nations Association of the United States. Uh, so this is a long-standing organization. It's been around nearly as long as the United Nations itself. Even longer, right? really, exactly. since 1943. So did it? Uh, was it sort of a civil society movement that helped um, 
you know, build support for the United Nations, for the idea of the United Nations and the United States? Was well, the well idea? said. Uh, in fact, it, it stemmed out of an earlier organization that was focused on the League of Nations okay. and was disappointed by the failure of the U.S. We to, all were. We all to were. Of course we were. Uh, but in the midst of World War II, when uh, the name United Nations was really the name of the alliance fighting fascism, uh, a group of Americans came together and said, let's, let's create an, an organization using that name to promote uh, the U.S. playing a role in creating a new multilateral entity to try to keep the peace after the war ended. And so they were using the word United Nations before the United Nations came into being. And we've really been there to connect Americans, to call for strong U.S. leadership within the U.N. ever since. Now, so there is this perception, I think, that Americans are hostile to the United Nations, though uh, polling data put, put out by the Better World Campaign almost every quarter seems to belie or under or, or you know seems to undermine that notion. Uh, what, like, how would you characterize Americans' sort of general attitudes towards the UN? Not necessarily UNA members, but like certainly uh, I, Americans at large. Certainly, I think that's a good point. And the polling data you mentioned shows that over 70 percent of Americans support U.S. engagement within the UN. Uh, but within that number, I think that there's a, a lot of amb ambiguity in terms of actually what the UN is and what it does. Um, so I think that that's kind of the story, and that that if you if you were to ask the average American whether they think that the, uh, the UN's a good thing, they'll recognize that it, it, it plays an important function, that the world's nations need to come together. But ultimately, if you ask them uh, to, give the, uh, to, to give their sense of what the UN is doing around the world, day in and day out, there's a lot of doubt or questions out there. And, and part of that is just that we don't have that many occasions to focus specifically on what the UN is doing out outside of this building. I mean, we're in the UN Secretariat today, and to the extent that Americans focus on the UN at all, it tends to be the Security Council and uh, viewing the UN as a talk shop as opposed to an action uh, agenda organization, uh, agenda in the best sense of the wor word, uh, an organization that's focused on vaccinating over half the world's children, on delivering, delivering peace and security in some of the most fragile corners of the world. Uh, you know, I myself depended on peace keeping for my personal safety when I was working in Liberia in the 90s. Uh, and if you think about what the UN is doing in those fragile corners of the world, it advances our direct national interests. And when you think about what it's doing to, uh, you know, over the, over the last decade and a half, two decades, there are five million children out around the world who would have suffered polio had it not been for, um, for the polio eradication efforts of the World Health Organization and the UN programs that support it. Those are things that advance our values as Americans. So I think the UN advances our interests and our values, but that story isn't really told. Most Americans just focus on the UN as a talk shop. They recognize that talk is good and necessary, but the more you have a chance to see the action work, the, the frontline workers of the UN, I think the more you, you get a sense of, of its connection to us and its importance to our national interests. Hey, you know, I, give, I give some talks about the United Nations. I, I do the same sort of uh, disaggregation of the UN between the UN that, that talks and the UN that does. Uh, but well, you know, there's said, a lot of value. There's a lot of value in the uh, in, in the talk shop here in the UN. Uh, yes, the UN building. Um, you know, talk is an alternative to war, uh, being one of them. Um, what is sort of UNA's current membership like? What are your current activities? Sure. How do you try to build support for you know both UNs? You bet. You bet. And um, and great point. I I am um, very supportive of the function of of the the UN as the global convener. The the talk is a, a great thing as well. Our membership is uh, growing towards twenty thousand. We have almost twenty thousand individual members around the country in 150 separate chapters, both on college campuses and in communities. Over half of our membership now is under age 25, so really our membership growth over the last few years has been among youth, which is a wonderful thing. I was actually, so I um, participated in this program you helped put together in Denver, uh, I guess uh, several, a few months ago, and was surprised by the youth that was represented at this panel. I mean, the knock on the UNA is that it's sort of an octogenarian 
seminarian uh, institution, but everyone in my little breakout group was a grad student or, or younger. It was pretty impressive. And it was great to have you there. Oh, that, thank you. That was uh, as part of our efforts to connect Americans to one of the most important decisions that the UN's making right now, the, the new set of development goals uh, to, to deal with extreme poverty between 2015 and 2030. And it's a great example of why we have so many young members in that it's a different UN now. This is a, a UN that is focused also on connecting with the citizens of individual member states. So this entire building, the Secretariat building, is electric with the, the process of deciding the new development goals from 2015 to 2030. But it's not just an expert discussion that's going on within the General Assembly or going on with, within uh, the programs and funds of the UN. They're connecting to individuals around the world through something called My World 2015. And uh, our members have played a direct role in giving their opinions, ensuring that their input is into the new set of development goals. And I think young Americans are used to uploading their opinions. I mean, it's been, it's been part of their social media existence since they were, um, you know, uh, in, in their uh, 12 or 13. Um, and now that the UN is providing platforms for them to share their own perspectives, to connect to the UN directly, have their say in decisions that the UN makes, I think that that's one of the keys to uh, to why we're having such growth in our, our youth membership, but also the, uh, both the both our, our um, members who are beyond age 25, and we have members who go up into age 105, and, and we love all of them, and they play a key role in our organization at any age. And all along, our membership have been very focused on connecting to U.S. leadership in Congress, in that ultimately the UN is a organization of member states. If we are Americans who care about the UN, then we need to focus on our own member state, the United States. And our, uh, our, our members are great advocates for U.S. leadership within the UN, for paying the peacekeeping budget, paying our general obligation dues, ratifying the treaties that, that are up for consideration. And those are the two things that I think are really animating UNA right now, connecting to the UN directly, now that the UN is looking to reach out to citizens, but also connecting to our own political leadership to ensure that the U.S. stays at the table, that, that we have a very active advocacy voice, and one of the, the most dynamic things we do is connect Americans to decisions that are made in U.S. foreign policy and with regard to the U.N. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Chris. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Now, rest assured, I did not interview only a man at the United Nations. Uh, however, this group of interviews seem to work well together as a group, so I put them together as a group. I have a whole bunch of other interviews that I will post at a later date that includes a more gender-diverse uh, cross-section of UN officials. Uh, so anyway, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye.